I got a fascinating note from a young man. He wrote me and said, uh, Dr. Broderick, everybody says they want to serve humankind. I get notices every day from people and businesses who say they care, but it seems like a bunch of them don't really want to serve, he wrote. He said, they just want control or power. And then he asked this question, how can I tell who is really going to help? Isn't that a fine question? It's really good. I, t I told him that he should look for the difference between two Two ideas, okay? There, there are two terms. They sound really similar, but they create vastly different worlds. Okay, the first term is intersection. Uh, when I was in school, mathematicians enjoyed uh, studying intersection theory. It studied things like, uh, like this. Int intersection theory is part of algebraic geometry. It has been studied since before Euclid. Uh, here's what's so cool about it. Here's what's so cool about it. The study of intersections is based on reality, there, there is an authentic, measurable series of, of lines and, and shapes. Uh, each exists on its own. However, they work together, get this, to make something special at the intersection. So, so in the Venn diagram we have here, we see this area. I'm going to call it one. This area one is, is wonderfully created by the intersection of these spheres, A, B, and C. They together make one. That's intersection theory. But then something really weird happened. Marxist forces in the humanities decided to ruin yet another beautiful part of math. Intersection theory became changed to intersectionality. That's, that's the second term. In intersectionality theory, space one of our Venn diagram becomes something oppressed. It is oppressed by the very presence of the power of A, B, and C. If, if, if number one were a person, intersectionality would not see that person as, as a unique and special creation of, of A, God, B, a mother, C, a father. No, no, no. The, it would be something oppressed by those forces. Now, the nonsense coming here is going to make you dizzy, all right? So, so try to hang on, kids. Intersectionality does not see forces of strength coming together to produce good things. No, no. Oppression is instead viewed as the only possible result. Therefore, intersections must be avoided. Let me show you a picture. This sums up intersectionality very nicely. Do you see how the one sphere is smiling? That is not acceptable. Her happiness cannot be a blessing to those she touches or those they touch because her joy is oppressive. It refuses to see how they suffer, and she is almost surely stealing happiness from them. 1993, a professor named Elizabeth Martinez called this the Oppression Olympics. I know, it sounds like a joke, but she was serious. She said only those people who are frowning over their oppression should be allowed to compete in life. Is crazy. But this is the kind of unreal thinking that people are bombarded with all day, which explains why this young man who wrote me was so confused. Now, here's why his question is so important. If intersections are precious, creative opportunities, then we, then we can and should learn from everyone and everything. Every intersecting situation in life becomes an opportunity to grow. But if intersections are intrinsically oppressive, then interactions between people will always be divisive. In fact, in fact, people who might oppress must be gagged or shouted down. 
Back to the great question. How can you tell a human who is ready to serve from one who just wants control? How can you tell if someone really wants people to pull together or if they desire that all be pulled apart? Here's the answer. Just find out whether a person is excited about intersections or terrified of intersectionality. If we think that every person is precious and we agree to work together, we, we can fly like a unified boat crew. But if we think that we are always oppressed and anyone else's blessing is cheating us, then we're, we're going to go nowhere. And that's the thinking behind Romans chapter 12. Turning your Bible to Romans chapter 12. Uh, it's right after Acts in your New Testament, uh, just before 1 Corinthians, Romans chapter 12. And um, last week, a little context here, last week Pastor Jeremy did a beautiful job walking us through the big idea of this section. The big idea of this section is to present our lives to God for continual transformation. Today, we start the specifics of how that happens, the specifics of how we present our lives. Let's read Romans 12, verses 3 through 8. For by the grace given to me, says the Apostle Paul, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Instead, think sensibly, as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. Now, as we have many parts in one body, and all the parts do not have the same function, in the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. According to the grace given to us, we have differing gifts. If prophecy, use it according to the proportion of one's faith. If service, use it in service. If teaching, in teaching. If exhorting, in exhortation. Giving with generosity. Leading with diligence. Showing mercy with cheerfulness. As we headline in your notes, um, by the way, if you haven't gotten them, you can probably grab them real quickly off of the website and print them off if you want to help learn in that way. As we headline in the notes, God is calling Christians to pull together. This is how we serve. In this passage, the apostle calls us to pull together, and it all starts with verse 3, knowing who I am. God says, don't think more highly of self than one should. How high is that? The Bible says that each of us is made in God's image. Do you know what the Bible says? It says the reason Jesus came and died was for us. God tells us that it was love that caused him to intersect with humans. In other words, God loves me. I am not a mistake. I am not here by chance. I am the intersection exactly planned by God. Here, let's do this. Let's do this. Kids, all kids, I want you to, I want you to stand up. Stand up. Now, safely, safely, with big people help, I want you to, to stand up on something. Climb up on something stable, a table, uh, a chair. Make sure big people are helping you. If, if you don't have anything like that in the room, let mommy or daddy lift you up and reach really, really high. Okay, reach high. Okay, you got it? You're reaching up, kids? Okay, reach up for the stars. Are you doing it? All right, good. That is... That is the exalted sense we have of being made in God's image and loved by Him. Made in the intersection of God and humanity, every single person matters. But listen, the Bible also shows that we are sinful, that the image of God has been defaced by sin. So kids, do this. Kids, get down now safely, carefully, climb down. Climb down right now, okay? Get down on the floor, okay? Get down on the floor, kids, carefully, 
and, and I want you to just wallow on the floor. Don't, don't speak. Don't use your arms and legs. Just, just kind of wallow there, okay? Just wiggle on the floor. You doing it quietly? Just wiggle on the floor. All right, while you wallow, listen. God reminds that e even those of us who have trusted Jesus, that we are wayward and foolish. It, in other words, we are in need. We can do nothing without him. You got it? That is the sense of being helpless in sin. We are stuck down low and we need God. Okay, hop up and take a seat. Take a seat. Take a seat. Take a load off your feet. All right. Yeah, settle down. All right, kids, you've been up on the stool. You've been down on the ground now. Take a seat. Settle down and, and look up here. If we pull it all together, here's what we see. God tells me that he loves me and that I need him. When I live that out, when I admit who I really am, a person loved by and in need of God, then I'm in a position to take advantage of intersections and pull together with other people. Here's the bottom line to verse 3. A person cannot pull together with others if he or she doesn't start with that authentic self-understanding from verse 3. All right, now go back to verses 4 and 5, which follow it. Verses 4 and 5 said, Now, as we have many parts in one body... And all the parts do not have the same function. In the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Pulling together requires knowing not just who I am, it requires knowing who we are. We, we discuss the individual in verse 3, but the individual is not meant to live outside community. Therefore, it is critical that God also walk us through who we are together. This is who we are. It is a corporate life. God states it right here. It is all about community, but sadly... People, e even Christians, are often absorbed with self-centeredness and competition. And that, that kills any opportunity of pulling together. Uh, Daniel Brown addressed this in his brilliant book, uh, The Boys in the Boat. I have referenced this book before. I will probably do so again. It is really, really excellent. I recommend it highly, The Boys in the Boat. Uh, he says this. In fact, I put this in your notes. I liked it so much. Great oarsmen and oarswomen must possess enormous self-confidence, strong egos, and titanic willpower. And yet, at the same time, and this is key, no other sport demands and rewards the complete abandonment of self the way rowing does. Great crews may have men or women of exceptional talent or strength. They may have outstanding coxswains or stroke oars or bowmen, but they have no stars. The team effort, the perfectly synchronized flow of muscle, oars, boat, and water, that single, whole, unified, and beautiful symphony that a crew in motion becomes is all that matters. Close quote. You know, you live in a world, I live in a world that needs to know God's truth. They are searching for real service, for people who, who really care, people who can really make a positive impact. Well, how can they discover that? By meeting Jesus. By meeting Jesus as he is revealed through a body of Christians who live together as interconnected parts. This is probably why so many people come to faith in Jesus during crises. It's in those moments when everything is, is stripped away that we Christians usually become much more dedicated to living out who we really are together. Speaking of crisis, the 2020 pandemic provides a perfect example. Where I live, families, families tend to run on high-octane schedules that are always on the go. And that's not all bad. 
But it was fascinating to see what happened when they were deprived of all their regular activities. You know what happened? People remembered who we are as a family, not merely as individuals. The, the forced focus on each other allowed many, many families to, to begin to see the forest of family instead of just the individual trees. Now, look at verse 6. Read just the first part of verse 6. According to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. Uh, Stop there. Pulling together occurs in submission to grace. Uh, That's the headline on the right side of your notes. Pulling together occurs in submission to grace. Look what Paul says. According to the grace given to us, it is God's grace that sets the milieu for, for real productivity and harmony and accomplishment. And this little word given, do you see the word given? That's huge. Huge. It's huge. It, it takes the pressure off us because God gives. That means he is in charge. He's leading the team and we don't need to fill his role. Think, just think. If, if my individual understanding comes only from me, I'm doomed It requires a narcissus-sized ego to pretend that I don't need anything or anyone else. And even if I believe that lie, and sometimes we do, it always gets exposed as nonsense. Same thing for the group dynamic. If we think that we are all and our group somehow is going to do with the resources that are in our little boat only, well, we're never going to achieve harmony. Go, Go back to the boat image. Why do, think about this, why do the fastest boats in the world, which is the eights, why do they have a coxswain? Because eight people, no matter how talented, eight people cannot pull in perfect unison. They cannot respond to changing conditions smoothly. But if someone is the giver, if someone is the director, the one in charge, then everybody in the boat can effectively work together. And it is teamwork. We are not the same. Notice, we're each given differing gifts. This is wonderful. It allows us to interconnect and assist each other as a, as a harmonious whole. Once again, Mr. Brown is just spot on. L- listen, listen to what he says about pulling together. Crew races are not won by clones. They're won by crews. And great crews are carefully balanced blends of both physical abilities and personality types. For instance, one rower's arms might be longer than another's, but the latter might have a stronger back than the former. Neither is necessarily a better or more valuable oarsman than the other. Both the long arms and the strong back are assets to the boat. But if they're to row well together, each of these oarsmen must adjust to the needs and capabilities of the other. Each must be prepared to compromise something in the way of optimizing his stroke for the overall benefit of the boat. These unusually powerful men or women must submit to the smallest and least powerful person in the boat, the coxswain, close quote. God calls us to pull together, and that requires submission to his grace, which also leads to gracious outcomes. This is so cool. This is so cool. Listen, if we accept that that we're not the givers, that we're not in charge, that God gives differing gifts to each of us and he has us intersect in special ways together. Do you know what it does? It actually causes more grace to abound. David Wade of our pulpit team sent me a great article by one of my favorite modern thinkers, Dr. Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. Uh, She was a practicing lesbian, a tenured professor, professor teaching intersectionality. That's what she was teaching when she was inexplicably drawn into an intersection with Jesus. If you don't know her story, following Jesus cost what she had thought was everything. 
and, and gave her what really is everything, abundant life in Christ. Dr. Butterfield is now married to Kent Butterfield. He's a pastor in North Carolina. And from there, she writes brilliantly about what it means to pull together. She recently shared this. This, this is absolute summary genius. Look, she said, intersectionality claims to create community. But the community it creates is fractured, victim-minded, angry, and inconsolable. She went on. This is the exact opposite of the community created by the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, Galatians 5, and 23. If you know it, say it with me, kids. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All right? Intersection brings that kind of fruit. It is founded in submission to grace, and it produces grace. It produces love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, intersectionality makes it absolutely impossible to pull together. It is not possible. Now read verses 6 through 8 again. All of, all of 6 through 8. According to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. If prophecy, use it according to the proportion of one's faith. If service, use it in service. If teaching, in teaching. If exhorting, in exhortation. Giving with generosity, leading with diligence, showing mercy with cheerfulness. God's gifting also requires actualizing what I've been given. God says, get with the program. Use your wonderful gift. But this, this brings up a big problem. We are granted gifts. Uh, and I, I know, I know what you kids are thinking. In your, uh, in your Toodles imitation from the movie Hook, you're saying, he's lost his marbles. Everyone loves getting gifts. He lost his marbles, lost my marbles. Right? Uh, thank you, Tootie, I hear you. Uh, Toodles, I hear you. But follow me on this. It, it really is true. In one sense, we really hate receiving gifts because then we're responsible to use them well. Kids, your parents used to watch a quirky, licentious, funny show called Seinfeld. They are older now and wiser, and they won't let you watch it. Um, but they thought it was hilarious. In every Seinfeld episode where someone gets a gift, every one where somebody gets a gift, this feeling of sorrow is displayed. There's an episode where Elaine gets really mad over being given tickets because now she has to be thankful. Uh, Jerry gets upset one time that his mom gave him something because now he'll have to use it. Newman, uh, he was a really bad guy on the show, he one time gave a gift to a guy called George just to, to upset him, just to make him miserable. Now, why is that funny? Why did that make Seinfeld the number one show in the world? Because people think like that. But what's funny on TV show is tragic in real life. Let's be honest. We often don't want to know that God has blessed us with these wonderful spiritual gifts by virtue of God's grace through our faith in Jesus. If we recognize that gift, then we would be responsible to use it. We have been graciously given gifts, and we must actualize what we have been given. We must develop and use our gifts. This is our spiritual service of worship. Look, look a paragraph up. Go, go up just one paragraph in your Bible to Romans 12, verse 1. Here's the, the setting of the context. Therefore, and the therefore is referring to all of the things he's talked about in Romans so far about, about theology, about who you are in Christ, what God has done for you and does in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. This is your true worship. In view of God's mercies, this gifting is not from ourselves. Present your bodies. Take what you have and use it for God. This is worship. We like the time to look at them today, but in other places, the scripture is very blunt. 
very blunt. It says that when we do not actualize our gifts, we're stealing. Mm -hmm. Stealing. It's time to stop being thieves. Many people who listen to these studies are probably not using their gifts to serve the Lord at all. Let me love you enough to be frank. It's time to stop stealing. Some of us who do serve are not developing or, or actualizing, growing in our gifts. You're not getting stronger through sharpening and practice. Friend, listen up. It's time to stop stealing. How can God's people be authentic in a, in a world where intersections, how can, how can we really impact the world where intersections, wonderful intersections are warped into nonsense like intersectionality? We pull together. How do we do that? Each of us must properly understand self. We need to know who we are together. We must operate by God's grace, and we develop and use what each is granted. All God's people said, amen. There's a second requirement for authentic Christian living. For answering the question that young man asked, it's found in verses 9 through 11. The last section we'll read today, Romans 12, 9 through 11. Let love be without hypocrisy. Detest evil. Cling to what is good. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lack diligence and zeal. Be fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. Paul says, get real. Get, get really real. I am convinced that one of the driving forces of life here in the 21st century is the desperate desire for authenticity. By the way, this is the number one thing I hear from people at, at uh, church newcomer desserts. Number one thing, more than any other, I'm looking for a place that is real. Kids, I know, I, I realize that sounds ridiculous to a child mind. In your, uh, in your Captain Hook imitation, you're asking, why? Do they think the meeting's a mirage? Real? A great question, Captain. Thanks for asking. The, the grown-ups who say they're looking for a real place, they're not concerned about a physical mirage. That's not what they mean. They're concerned about whether people are living out Romans 12 here or not. You see, God teaches us how to think if we're going to pull together and serve. There are four big ideas here. Four ways to achieve authenticity, to be really real. First, don't just pretend to love. Honestly love. That's what we're told in verses 9 and 10. When I taught in East Germany in 1990, when I went to East Germany to teach in 1990, everyone there was talking about these two guys, the ex-dictator of Germany, East Germany, Erich Honecker, and pastor, a pastor named Uwe Holmer. I want to read to you from an American pastor, uh, Chris Martin. He wrote a story about these two guys called, very intuitively, Uwe Homer and Eric Honecker. And, um, and in his story, he describes why these two guys were the coffee shop gossip of the day. Listen to this. January of 1990, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, Eric Honecker, the brutal and hated dictator of East Germany, found himself sick and homeless. So despised was he that no one could be found to provide him shelter. The Honeckers contacted Pastor Uwe Homer, who directed a church-run convalescent center in the village of Lübetal. Pastor Homer had bitter memories. Listen to this. He had bitter memories of Honecker and his regime. Honecker had personally presided over building of the wall, the wall that separated Homer's family and kept him from attending his own father's funeral. He had even greater reason to resent Honecker's wife, who ran the East German Ministry of Education. By the way, if you want to get a feel for her, um, if you're old enough, watch the Harry Potter movies that have the pink lady. Okay, that 
I'm telling you, I was, that's, anyway, that's, it was based on her. Um, Honecker's wife, who ran the East German Ministry of Education. Holmer's 10 children had been denied admission to any university because of their faith. It would have been easy for Pastor Homer to turn Honecker away because the church's retirement home was full. In fact, it had a long waiting list. But because Honecker's need was urgent, Pastor Homer decided he had no choice but to shelter the couple under his own roof. Now, just stop for a moment. Honecker was the king of intersectional-type Marxist thinking. He always claimed to serve people, but he didn't. You know what he claimed? I, I was there in the 80s listening to him on the other side of the wall. He claimed that his communism helped the oppressed. What a lie. He claimed that the walls were built to protect. They were all lies. Pastor Homer could have just answered in the same way, but instead he chose to accept the intersection of this dictator into his life. And he chose to honestly love him. Back to the story. I put this part in your notes. I liked it so much. He said, Pastor Holmer's charity was not shared by the rest of the country. Hate mail poured in. Some members of his own church threatened to leave or cut back their giving. Pastor Holmer defended his actions in a letter to the newspaper. He wrote, quote, in Lobital, there is a sculpture of Jesus inviting people to himself. This is from the book of Matthew and crying out, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We have been commanded by our Lord Jesus to follow him and to receive all those who are weary and heavy laden in spirit and in body, but especially the homeless. What Jesus asked his disciples to do is equally binding on us, close quote. Now, when I was there in the early 1990s, thousands of formerly East German people turned to faith in Jesus. It was awesome. But you need to know the context. The main spark of those conversions was not our preaching. It was people like Pastor Homer. People who didn't just pretend to love, but honestly loved. The, the verses 9 and 10 love commands come in the context of our call to service. You know, service often seems hard. But when you're in love, it makes service easy. Just look, just look at a couple who is in love. They enjoy even the hardest tasks because it is a joy to serve the one you love. Love helps you get really real. Now, read the rest of verse 9. The rest of verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Detest evil. Cling to what is good. The second key to authenticity. Know evil from good and cling to the good. That is not as easy as it sounds. There are many things that work against our living out uh, verse 9. Two come readily to my mind. First, our postmodern society tells us, I know it's ludicrous, but it tells us all the time, there is no right and wrong. And secondly, our, our natural inbuilt desire to cover up our own sins leads us to enjoy clouding the issues. So we find it hard to really know evil from good because the world and our own hearts are so talented at lying to us. Furthermore, once we do figure out right from wrong, we often don't stand and hang on to the right. When I coached baseball teams, when I was a baseball coach, our boys were taught, one of the things we taught on our teams is it's wrong to tease or to trash talk the other team. In, in the dugout one night, I heard one of my players um, who'd been with us for a number of years proudly telling a, a new player on our team, we don't do that better, better swing stuff. That's, that's just ugly. We don't do that. Okay? But the team we played that night, they sounded like a bunch of cicadas, okay? I mean, they were incessant. Hey, better, 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 better. Hey, your mom's ugly, better, better, better. Your mom hates you. Hey, you better, better, you suck. Swing! 
over for an hour. By the third inning, that little angel on my team was at the fence yelling at their pitcher, calling him a sissy. I had to call him over and remind him that he is to abhor evil and cling to what is good. Now, what would God call you away from your fence and remind you of? What pictures are you calling sissy? To cling to the good, here's what we have to do. We have to mortify sin. We have to detest evil inside us and call it what it is. So, for example, if I know that uh, foul language is unwholesome, but I struggle with clean speech, I must detest cussing. I cannot excuse it. I cannot coddle it. Or if I know, if I know that laziness or gossip or porn or a mean spirit or cheating or any other bad thing is bad, I have to confess it as bad. I have to make war on evil in my soul. I have to mortify sin, declare sin to be sin. I must know evil from good and cling to the good if I'm going to be authentic to people. Our hypocrisy is disgusting and dishonest. It defeats us, it disillusions non-believers, and is untrue to who we are. Get really real instead. Cling to what is good. Amen? Amen. Now, look at the last half of verse 10. Last half of verse 10 teaches us to delight in honoring each other. Our service to Jesus is not about building individual little silo kingdoms. This is my least favorite part of Christian ministry, by far. Sometimes it seems that everyone in Christian ministry is busy building his or her own empire with no regard for the work being done by our brethren. Christians should be excited about the blessings to that other ministry within our church instead of grumbling, why didn't our budget get that kind of increase, right? Christians should be excited when good things happen to that other church or that other denomination. We should honor them. We should have fun doing it. I observe the body as expressed at Frisco Bible critically. It's, it's, it's my role to do so. I watch you. I critique and pray for you and discuss the, the good and bad things I see with the elders. And I want to take a moment and express my admiration for how well you do this. You really seem to give preference to other people in honor. And I just want to applaud and tell you, well done. That does not mean you're finished. I have no doubt that we need to grow in this even more so that we can be real to a world that is in need. Amen? Here, let's, just to remind you of how important this is, do this right now. If you are with someone else right now, this, if you're with someone else right now, I want you to get, get to them and look them in the eyes. Do this. Did I, did I say this was optional? Do good. Cling to it. I'm telling you good. I want you to look the other person in the eye and I want you to ask them, do you enjoy it? I know it's an obvious question. Do you enjoy it when I honor you? Or you can say, do, do you enjoy it when I uh, applaud you, when I tell you well done, when I say good job, when I thank you? Anything that's honoring. Just right now, right now. Turn, each person gets to do it. Turn and ask somebody, do you enjoy it when I honor you? And let them ask you back. Do you like it when I tell you good job? Okay, what did, except for the contrarians among us, what did nearly every person say? Yes. But I want you to think about this. In their eyes, I bet you saw, when you asked that question and they answered, I bet you saw some, some humor, some amusement over the goofiness of the activity, but I bet you also saw 
a spark of joy, happiness, gratitude. Their eyes were, were sparkling a little bit. Remember that. Remember that. Delight in that. Commit to honor each other. Outdo, remember that look and outdo one another in service to each other. Now, read verse 11. Here's the fourth part of getting really real. Serve the Lord enthusiastically. Verse 11. Do not lack diligence in zeal. Be fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. When I was in college, I made money uh, working over Christmas break at the beef plant where my dad was vice president. I wish, I wish you had a dollar for every time a hardworking worker, and these were hardworking people, came up to me and said something like, your dad's a real boss. He cares about people. He understands us. It is a pleasure to work for that man. Those workers felt connected to my dad, so they served him enthusiastically. Friends, you and I cannot be lazy. We work for too wonderful a boss. Jesus is the Lord we serve. He cares about people. He understands us. It is a pleasure to work for him, and we should do so with zeal. Each Christian is connected to Jesus, and together we are the body of Christ. Therefore, we should serve him enthusiastically. We live out real Christianity when we serve. We need to make up our minds that by faith in God and through his grace, we will serve the Lord enthusiastically. How do we do that? Well, we embrace all the intersections, every single intersection God brings in life. That means we pull together and are authentic. We pull together and we're authentic. Looking at the points in our passage, we pull together. Each properly understands self. We, we know who we are together. We must operate by God's grace and we develop and use what each person has granted. And then we live that out in authenticity with people. We don't pretend. We honestly love. We know evil from good and we cling to the good. We delight in honoring each other and we serve the Lord enthusiastically. Then... Instead of being conformed to the intersectionality of this world, you know what's going to happen? We will be transformed by the, our intersections with God and people. In fact, I think it will amaze you to see just how much power, just how fast we can go when we make up our minds to pull together and live authentically. So this week, let's act on this. Let's act on this. Three ideas to get you started. This is just to get you started. I have three ideas for you. First, this week... You're going to receive a note from our elders, which lays out and gives protocol guidance regarding the next phase of our work together here. Look through that and find the way that you will enthusiastically serve. Maybe different than the way you've served heretofore. Find it. Secondly, call or write our pastors and staff. They love, and I mean they love to help people find ways to pull together and to live authentically. It's what they do. You will make their day. They'll creatively work with you to find how you can best pull together and live authentically. Thirdly, ask the Holy Spirit of God to reveal a way that you could serve, an intersection of which you need to take advantage. I'm sure there is some intersection in your life of which you are not taking advantage. In fact, you may even be slipping into the folly of intersectionality and rejecting it. Ask God to expose that and then act on it. To that end, let's pray. Pray with me. Father, I pray for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters. <clears throat> we see the foolishness of intersectionality so easily in other people, but we don't notice what a log it is in our own eyes. We beg you 
to let us practice intersection theory, to pull together, to take every opportunity to live authentically. We pray, Father, that you will change so many, many things that need changing in us and let us enjoy the intersection, the opportunity to be engaged in that with you. In Jesus' name, amen.